Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We are coming to you in front of an audience today at the Cedar Grove Apartments in Beaverton. This was created by Community Partners for Affordable Housing, which has been working to create homes Oregonians can actually afford to live in for 30 years now. We've come here to talk about the state's housing affordability crisis. This is part of a series of conversations we're doing this year about some of the biggest problems Oregon is facing, along with possible solutions. More than half of renters in Oregon do not have enough money after they pay their rent to be able to afford basics like food or childcare or transportation. Meanwhile, Oregon is among the states with the lowest supply of rentals that are affordable to people who are at or below poverty levels. As a state economist put it recently, we have the worst affordability in the nation. We're going to start today with Rachel Duke. She is the executive director of Community Partners for Affordable Housing, or SEPA. Thanks, first of all, for letting us do our show from one of your buildings. We're so excited to have you here and to talk about the work that we're doing. Can you start by just describing where we are? What is Cedar Grove? Yeah, so Cedar Grove is a apartment community. How many units do we have here? We have 44 units here, and they range from uh, smaller units to larger family apartments. Uh, One of the things that's really exciting about Cedar Grove is that we have some units set aside for families who are exiting homelessness. Uh, That's really important because we're also able to provide additional services through partnership with another organization to support those families. Hmm. Um, We have a couple residents with us here, and I'd love to, to go to one of them right now. Taylor Alvarado, I understand that you moved to Portland from Hawaii not long ago, last year, and first lived with a relative before you moved here. What were you looking for in a place? Yeah, before you moved here, what I mean, what were your options? Before I moved here, it was living or squatting in someone's place because our building we were living in was closing down and. Housing already was bad. Like that place we were living in, it was a old hotel, and the state changed it to a Section 8 available housing situation. It was so bad in Hawaii. And they were just about to close down the building, and I had no family, no friends, nothing out there. Um, everybody was just doing their own thing, and it's just me and my kid. And nobody wants to take care of a whole mother and child thing like that. I've been getting a lot of that. So when I came out here, I'm like, okay, I'm giving everything I worked for and did all within this past year and a half, and I'm taking it to Oregon. And we just kind of packed our bags and got on that flight, and I was like, this is it, you know? And I got my—I made sure everything was arranged before I even got here because I was like, I need to get on it when I get off that plane. Like, I can't just sit around and expect something to fall in my lap. When you say to be honest, in, in terms of like applications for applications. Section Eight vouchers, or you already had those when you got here? Oh no, I had a Section Eight before I got here. Okay, so that's why it was really crucial because I was like, I already have that part. I just need to get an apartment now. That's the next step. You just, but when you say just need to get an apartment, but my understanding is that can still be a huge challenge. Oh yeah, it is. It can be. Like there was this. There was only three other apartments that I could even consider because my income is so small and I don't make a lot of money. There was one 30 minutes away from here or there is like wait a whole nother year and just keep asking county to extend my voucher. Hmm. It was it was scary. Do you remember the moment that you found out that you actually had gotten a unit here? I was crying. I was first jumping for joy and <laughs> crying and just in awe because I was told there wasn't going to be an opening for a whole nother year. And so I was expecting to wait a whole year. Hmm. How different is your life now than before you had this place? Very different. I feel like I got a backbone. I feel way more safe, way more stable. Um, I don't have to worry about something going wrong. I mean, I don't look forward to leaving anytime soon. I mean, I can 
the cost I can try and manage, but compared to Hawaii, no, I don't have to worry about, you know, being in the streets at any point. And that's the biggest relief for me. Do you have a sense for where you would be right now if it weren't for the Section 8 vouchers? Probably living with my grandma on her floor. (laughs) Yeah. Right next to you, you have an active seven-year-old son who seems very happy. When I came right before the show started, I, I, I asked how, you, how you're both doing, and he said, great. <laughs> um, what's, what's life like for both of you at this apartment? It's so much more calmer. We, we don't have to worry about some random person knocking on our door at like two in the morning. We don't have to worry about police coming down and chasing people around. We don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff or waking up to yelling or just in general, like it's quiet. There's a whole bunch of kids on our floor and I don't hear not one of them. And it's like, oh my God, like, is this real? Like I kind of have to take a minute to really gather that. I'm still trying to, you know, gather that this is real. Hmm. So for him, he's just like, it's, he's very happy. <laughs> Taylor, thanks very much. You're welcome. That's Taylor Alvarado, who is one of the residents here at Cedar Grove. Jillian Siraj Felton is with us uh, as well, housing director at Community Partners for Affordable Housing. Um, And I have to say that when we were putting the show together, um, our senior producer, Allison Frost, um, said that reason enough to do this show is that after she talked to you for the very first time, after maybe more than literally more than a decade of of talking on and off about affordable housing, she finally understood the mechanism of the way affordable housing works in this country. And I said to her, great, because I actually don't feel like I have ever truly understood it either. (laughs) Um, So let's start with the basics, because they're really important. We're talking about policy here and and taxes. So let's start with the money. Where does the money come from to put together an affordable housing building? So... um that's a great question. The largest, I think what's commonly mistaken is that the, the major funder of affordable housing is low-income housing tax credits, or LIHTC. Over 90% of all affordable housing in the country has some form of LIHTC involved, which makes the IRS the number one funder of affordable housing. And that was established under the 1986 tax reform as a way to bring private investment into affordable housing and to kind of you know, when the federal government wanted to dis, disinvest. So what that means is that we're a nonprofit, so tax credits, we don't have to pay taxes. So it's a little bit like wimpy on Popeye, right? I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. So we will find an investor and they'll say, okay, you have $10 million in tax credits. Wait, but you skipped ahead. So, mm. so you got... The, t- the, the federal government gives the tax credits to states, and then, the, yes. and then some state the tax- housing agency awards them to someone like you. Yes. So the tax credits all flow through the state, and there, um, there are two types of tax credits. Um, one is a 9% tax credit and a 4% tax credit, and without getting too wonky, the 9% is bigger. So the, ni- <laughs> the 9%, there's limited, and it's distributed um, to each state on a per capita basis, which is adjusted every 10 years with the census. Um, in theory, the 4% is unlimited, but it is capped by the state's ability to issue private activity bonds. So private activity bonds are a way for, um, originally, in the original legislation, it was meant as a way to make the 4% tax credits more affordable by pairing them with tax-exempt debt. But what has happened since the need for affordable housing has grown so much is that we've run out of tax-exempt debt. So there's this rule that the 4% and private activity bonds have to go together. So therefore, the 4% is now capped. And this, it, I should say, this is why I always get a little <laughs> bit confused when we talk about financing of, of yeah. affordable housing. But let's, so, but let's stick with the, the 9% mm. ones. You said okay, those, those yep. are the more attractive ones yes. to, to investors. So, let's, so a group like you um, is awarded some of these from the state. What do you do next? 
Um, so this actually Cedar Grove, where we are right now, is funded um, with a 9% low-income housing tax credit. And what we did is we went out and found an investor who wants to buy those tax credits because they don't do us any good. So they, if we have $10 million in tax credits, the investor will say, okay, I will give you $9 million up front and you give me the $10 million in tax credits over time. And so that money up front that the investor puts in is what allows us to actually fund the construction of the building. But that also means that we are doing things around the tax code, which I don't know if you've had a look at recently, but is thousands of pages long and complicated. So it does, it gets only gets wonkier from there. But you, <laughs> um, you now have money to to spend to actually build housing, and they have gotten the discount on a tax credit. That's right. Who owns the building? So the building is in a limited partnership um, where SEPA is the 0.1% owner, but we are also the managing partner and the general partner. And the investor is the 99.99% owner, but they are the limited partner. They're kind of like a silent partner. So um, if we wanted to do something major to the building, we would need their consent. But for the most part, as far as when it comes to day-to-day operations, maintenance of the building, that sort of thing, that's all on SEPA. So um, looking at the big picture, is it fair to say that most affordable housing, as we know it in this country, would not happen if it weren't for this provision of federal tax code? Absolutely. Is this a good system? It's the system we have. Right. <laughs> um, is it? <laughs> Let me ask again, though. Uh, is this the, the best system you can imagine? No. I mean, the best system would be to have a single funding source that financed an entire building that required no debt and allowed us to operate um, buildings providing rents at the lowest possible um, rate. But that is not, that's not how tax credits work. So, people pay, paid their taxes instead <laughs> of needing tax credits. Right. Because that would also be a much simpler way to do it. Yeah. Um, funders tend to want, they, nobody wants to fund a project 100%, not even tax credits. So for this building, we have um, 9% low-income housing tax credits. We have home funds, which are, um, they come through the county, but they're federal um, HUD dollars. We have, as we've mentioned, project-based vouchers. We have, so we have investment, and the, the land was donated by the county. So there's layers and layers in this cake, right? If you think of the financing like a cake, the tax credits are the bottom layer, right? They're kind of holding everything else up, and, but we still have a lot of wedding cake to build to get to a fully funded project. I'm struck by the idea that the people who are putting together, people like you, who are putting together these kinds of deals, you have to sort of hustle to, to figure out where all these bits of money are coming from in ways mm-hmm. that maybe aren't that different. I mean, you're talking about millions of dollars, but maybe not that different from the, the kinds of how am I going to pay for this? How am I, I going to get together money to pay for the daily necessities that are the reality for the people who are, who are living in the buildings that you're trying to finance? Absolutely. It's a great observation. Um, we are always trying to you know hustle money out of here and hustle money out of there. Um, I like that term. Um, and, and one of the things that happens with the way that these projects are structured is that while there's all of these millions of dollars coming in and while there's a, you know, a very wealthy investor who's buying the tax credits, the risk of failure generally sits with the nonprofit. So if this building doesn't make money, it's not the limited partner that does, has to come up with a shortfall. They it, still get their tax credit? They still get their tax credit. And the a nonprofit would have to front the difference. So it is, you know, there's, yes, there's a lot of contribution. And, you know, I, I often tell people that the thing to focus on is everyone wants to make it work. No one wants an affordable housing development to fail. But at the end of the day, it is the risk sits with the nonprofit. Hmm. Rachel Duke, I want to take an, another look at this, which is, how you decide where to put a building to begin with. We are in Cedar Mill, which most of it is not Beaverton. This is a, a, a part <laughs> of, of what's once, what once was unincorporated uh, Washington County, which was gobbled up by Beaverton. Um, but how do you decide that this is the right place to put an apartment like this? Um, well, a lot of time, uh, development's opportunity-driven. 
Um, and in this particular case, there was an RFP for this particular land by a request Washington. request for proposals. Thank the, you for the that. The county yeah, so, said, what should we do? Anyone have right. an idea of what you want to do in this place? That's right. And so SEPA applied to be the developer of housing here. Our main, um, our main competition was a food cart pod. I, I want to say it was very close uh, between the food cart pod and the affordable housing community. Uh, Virginia was here. She's nodding. Um, and um, we were really grateful that we were able to, to get access to, to the land because really the only way to be successful at applying for those tax credits is to have a place to build. Hmm. So we have to have a project that we're going to bring to the state and say we want, we want to fund this project. Uh, sometimes we do go look for parcels that we think will make good affordable housing communities. And in some cases, we've been able to do that successfully uh, as well. But sometimes we are also reliant on uh, the jurisdictions. If they, put, if they uh, have a piece of land that they make available for development, that's really great for us because then we apply for it and it requires uh, less resource up front than if we're going to be looking for a parcel ourselves. You mentioned Virginia. Virginia Bruce is with us, uh, the chair of the community participation organization for this part of Washington County, also the publisher of the Cedar Mill News. Virginia, what went through your mind um, as a, a longtime activist and chronicler and community member here when you heard um, that a longstanding nonprofit that builds affordable housing was interested in an apartment here? Well, it came before that. I was part of the team that uh, try, was trying to work with the county to decide what to do with this corner. The county did a big redevelopment here at the corner of um, Cornell and Murray, and this was actually originally part of a little mall. And by the time the county was done with what they were doing, the property was quite small. They put it up for auction, and they never got a good bid for it. And so finally they pulled together a team to try to figure out, well, now what? And as, as uh, Rachel mentioned, there was a food cart pod that was interested, but there wasn't enough parking here, and there still isn't enough parking here. And when CEPA's um, proposal, the more we studied it, the better it sounded. And the county really wanted to help with housing uh, issues. It's a perfect place because we have transit, we have shopping, we have you know medical services. It's it's. This part of Cedar Mill is way more walkable than most of Cedar Mill. And, uh, you know, it just seemed like a good deal. Hmm. Did you encounter nimbyism people oh who are God, in the yes. area who said, I, I don't want low-income people in my nice neighborhood? No, and as a matter of fact, there's a piece of the property that was privately owned by somebody who just didn't want to have anything to do with it. It would have made a big difference if they'd been able to acquire that property, and she just was again it. Um, and did, there well, were some well, people so what, who, what, How did you deal with that? Well, she didn't sell. <laughs> they had to develop around her. Well, but, I mean, I mean broadly, but, how yeah, did you deal with, with I, public with negative public sentiment? I think mostly we just said, let's wait and see. And I learned a lot about CPOP before things happened. I, I should say, another. This, this is community partners for affordable housing, right. the the nonprofit that, <laughs> right. that built this and but a that's number so of hard other. To say, sure, we, we can keep going with CPOP. I just want to remind listeners. You said you learned a lot. What did you learn? Well, uh, Rachel invited me down to tour another property they had in Hillsdale. And the fact that they don't just house people, that they support the families that move in here. The kids, they have all sorts of wonderful programs for the kids. And it's a supportive environment that wants people to succeed. And that made a huge amount of difference. It isn't just, uh, you know, rooms. It's, it's a whole support system. And that I think that helped to convince people. Thank you very much, Virginia Bruce. If you're just tuning in, we're talking uh, about possible solutions uh, to Oregon's decades in the making lack of affordable housing. Patrick Curlin is another resident here of Cedar Grove. Patrick, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. What brought you here? Brought me here? Well, I had about, uh, almost as I grew up in this area, it's changed a lot. Um, Around COVID, COVID, I became homeless, and luckily I had applied for Section Eight when I was when I was losing my house. And it took eight years for me to get on that list, but I was I lived in my car for about a year working, and 
I got in touch with New Narrative, and they were able to get me in. And this place changed my life. I was one of the last, last people to get in this building. So, so right before you got into a unit here, mm-hmm. you had been living in your car yes. for a year. On, uh, about a year, yeah. And it took you eight years to get a Section 8 voucher? Yeah, when I started having issues in my house, I went through a rough divorce. Um, I just I got on the list. At that time, it was that long. And just happened for timing. I lived with some family for a while and had, a, had something happen there. And instantly during COVID, yeah, I, no one would take me in. So I had a daughter, gave back to, to my, my ex, and now she's back with me. But it, yeah, it's taken that long. In the narrative, it gives you two years. You have to work. And they give you the resources to get back on your feet. So. And now I'm getting full employment, and I'm lucky I have a degree, and, and I had a, a good education. So hmm. I'm a bit different. Some people here, I had a house. <clears throat> so it was, it's been different getting here, but I think this area is great. I mean, provide a lot of resources, and the kids run around, they're happy, they have a place to play. Um, and this is right next to everything. To me, it's changed a lot since it's grown up here. So, Patrick, thanks very much. Thank you. Jillian Siraj Felton, um, let's turn to what the rules are, the, the federal rules, because I imagine if they're going to, if you're going to get, you know, $9 million of federal money, they're going to tell you a lot about what you can or can't do with this building once it's built. So, so what are the rules in terms of, of income um, for who can actually be residents here? So all um, LIHTC-funded housing is for people who are making 60% of area median income or below. So every year, and the for Portland, um, there's the Portland kind of metro statistical area, or MSA. And so it's Clackamas County, Washington County, and Multnomah County are all in the same um, MSA. Currently, for a family of four, 100% or average median income is about $100,000. So for a family of four, that would put 60%, $60,000 a year or less. Um, in order to get a 9% tax credit, those are competitive. And the state um, really wants to see that you're serving people with the lowest incomes, that you're making the most impact before they want to give you the you know the best deal. And so... Uh, here we have units that are set at the rents are set at affordability at 30% area median income, 40% area median income, 50 and 60. So we have quite the the range of both unit sizes and income mix that we can have here. And uh, when you apply for housing, your income is verified. Um, that goes through a certification process, and it is that that qualifies you for the the low income unit. We've heard stories so far of two residents here who arrived with Section Eight vouchers that, that mm-hmm. can um, pay for part or a big chunk of the rent. Are there also vouchers that are attached to the building, or do they, do they just attach themselves to people? Both. So this development has eight project-based Section 8 vouchers. So those vouchers follow the unit. So they're assigned to specific units in the building. In this building, they are all on family size units, two and three bedrooms. There are also housing choice vouchers. So those are vouchers that follow the resident. And the idea with housing choice vouchers is that you can take them anywhere you want. But the reimbursement rate that the vouchers pay is no longer truly market rate. So it's hard, even if you have been on that eight-year wait list and you have that golden ticket of a housing choice voucher, without an affordable housing community, it's hard to find somewhere where you can still afford the rent, even though you have the voucher. Rachel, can you give us a sense for the need here for, for the waiting lists just for your properties? 
I mean, for the most part, um, some of well, some of our waiting lists are closed. Each building has its own waiting list that's managed by the property management company we're working with. So we we at SEPA don't manage that wait list, but we get countless calls from folks um, every week asking about housing and housing availability. Uh, so uh, at some of our projects, you can expect to wait uh, two years. Um, after a certain point, the you know the wait lists are closed because there's no point really in having a wait list that goes beyond two years. Rachel, it would be great if you can stay with us for the second half of our show. Jillian Siraj Felton, thanks very much. Thank you. Jillian Siraj Felton is the housing director at CPOT, Community Partners for Affordable Housing. We've got to take a quick break. We have a lot more about affordable housing in Oregon. That's a minute away. Stay tuned. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. If you're just tuning in, we're focusing today on the lack of affordable housing in Oregon. We're coming to you in front of an audience at Cedar Grove. It's a 44-unit apartment complex in Beaverton. It was built by the nonprofit Community Partners for Affordable Housing, or SEPA, three years ago. Rachel Duke is our guest for the hour. She's the executive director of the nonprofit. I want to turn to another member of our audience, Paula Morrison is a resident of Red Rock Creek Commons, which is in Tigard. When did you move there? Um, it was right after the COVID started, and it was at the end of 2019. And thank you so much for having me here so you can hear my voice. Um, when I moved into Red Rock Creek Commons, I was with New Narrative. And that young man earlier that was on the show, New Narrative is great. Can you describe what New Narrative is? Um, they don't just help you with rental assistance. They also help, they have a rental assistance program. Before they put you into programs like this place, they help you. You have to do the footwork as much as they do the footwork. They have um, therapy. They have psychiatry. Um, they have classes for people to get together. People that feel lonely and depressed, that don't have friends and that cannot make friends. They have each other because they have group homes too. But they're the ones that introduced me to Red Rock Creek Commons. I was with their rental assistance program. But um, to make a long story short, I told them I did not want to move to Red Rock Creek at first because I was told, but you've been working so hard to get on housing. You only have to live there for a year, and then you'll get your voucher. And I said, okay. So I didn't know what subsidized housing was. You know, I'd never been on my own in my whole life. And I'd always taken care of my mother or my brothers or sisters. There's 14 of us, and I'm the oldest. So moving there was a big thing to me. You mean being alone, being on your own? Yes, yes. It was either a group home, mm. foster home, or you know something like that all my life. Mm. And so this was a big thing to me, to be able to live on my own. And my sister, the only relative that I have here in Oregon, she was like, you can do this, you can do this. You have the new narrative support. Melissa and the manager and all these new people that I'm going to be moving in with, you know, eventually they became my friends. We are a small community. Everybody that I have met at Red Rock has made me feel at home and comfortable mm-hmm. once I have moved in there and become the friends. But I appreciate the fact that we all stick together. And if one person has a problem, we all talk about it and try to help one another. So, you know, one day I'd like to be able to say, this is going to be my forever home. The only thing I don't like about Red Rock Creek Commons is the fact that I have to climb up that hill in the winter because of the ice and snow. So, but It seems like you had been concerned about whether or not you'd feel supported there or maybe whether or not you'd feel lonely. Can you give us a sense for the services or the supports that have made it work for you? Um, I would have to say the residents. The, the, residents other, the other residents, your neighbors. The other residents and my neighbors, yes. And Melissa and the manager. Who is Melissa? The one that's sitting right next to me, this young lady. Um, when she's there at the office, anytime someone has an issue or wants to find out about housing or just, or if the manager's not available or a resident isn't available, we can always come to her. We could either text her or call her or leave a message, and she'll she'll call us even on a weekend, you know, or text us on a weekend, you know. But when it comes to having that support and someone to cry with or someone to say, I'm just having a bad day or something like that, everybody says, I love you, I love you, good morning, you know, or something like that, you know. But 
when there is a crisis there, everybody tries to pitch in and help, especially if someone falls or tries to commit suicide or, you know, anything like that. We are all always available 24-7, even if it's in the middle of the night and someone is asleep. Paula Morrison, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having it's, me. It's Paula Morrison, who is a resident of another CPOD development, Red Rock Creek Commons in Tigard. Renee Sheets Johnson is with us up here, resident services coordinator for this nonprofit. Can you give us a sense for the range of services that you offer to residents? Sure. And I also just want to say, Melissa, who was being referred to, is the resident services coordinator for Cedar Grove and Red Rock Creek Commons. So that's the job that she's providing there. And that's the extra support Virginia was talking about earlier that SEPA provides that makes us so unique. So as a resident services coordinator, um, well, I personally work with the 55 and older groups, so I have three buildings that I work with. Um, the Knoll, a shout out to my buildings. The Knoll, <laughs> uh, and I have a great uh, resident, Mary Barbie, from The Knoll here today with us. And the Watershed, which is the one in Hillsdale, which uh, Virginia got to visit. It also houses our corporate offices. And then the Barcelona, which is in downtown Beaverton. So um, I provide services to all of those buildings. My first and foremost was I took this job coming in during COVID. So social isolation was a big deal. Um, and my background is program management. So I really wanted to... Um, address the social isolation piece and get people comfortable uh, engaging with each other again, uh, building programs, uh, having volunteers coming in and running programs, running bingo, having volunteers run yoga, um, doing ice cream socials. So social isolation was a big one for me. But we also provide amazing services that would, you would partner with someone, an uh, organization like New Narratives or Community Action Council so that you can get energy assistance for our residents. So that for us, that means PGE puts it, they put a huge credit on their PGE bill so they don't have to pay their PGE bill. Um, we also do work with food insecurity. So we have... Um, information about local food pantries for me personally because I work with the elderly if they don't drive I will go and pick up food for them get them a food box at a local food pantry and deliver it to them um, and mainly a lot of what the other resident was talking about is really just building that sense of community and because for working with seniors is they I want to help them stay as independent and living to their fullest potential as long as possible. And that's what they want too. So the more I can support them to do that, the better. And that's what I focus on. All of this sounds like making people's lives better. And so maybe this question seems cold-hearted or terrible, but, but why are you doing this? This is not necessary from the perspective of an affordable housing nonprofit. You've, you've already succeeded in building this as an organization and you've gotten people into it, why go this extra step of actually <laughs> making their lives better? Well, for me personally, I'm a trained social worker. I mean, I have my master's in social work. And I have to tell you, prior to this job, I had no idea what a resident services coordinator was. I had no idea that anybody did this job and or that it existed. And so, I mean, I'm thrilled to have a job that is a hybrid between being a social worker and also getting to play and run bingo <laughs> and do yoga and all the fun things too. So it's a perfect mix for me. Hmm. And it's obviously needed in our communities. I mean, I think, I think, again, it's what makes our apartments unique, but any apartment complex would appreciate it, I'm sure. Yes. But but most don't have them. Right. And, and, and most our, apartment our, managers wouldn't pay for someone like you to do this work. Exactly. And I think part of that is we're a nonprofit, so we're mission-driven. And our mission is to provide people not only affordable housing, but to help them live to their fullest potential. And and we do that by providing that, those kind of supports. Well, Rachel, Dick, we haven't really talked about what it means to be a nonprofit here. But I, I guess I'm curious about the opposite of that. I mean, the extent to which you think 
the for-profit model or, or you know, for-profit entities could do what you're doing? Um, before I answer that question, can I, I would like to speak a little bit to, towards the purpose of resident services Please. beyond. So um, I think what's really important to say is that resident services, uh, a lot of what that is about is helping our residents be successful in staying in housing. And from a systems perspective, if you just want to talk about how systems work, <clears throat> we spend, our systems spend a lot of energy helping to get people to move into that housing. It doesn't make sense for somebody to get into that housing and then have a problem and then have to leave. We want, uh, that's not a good use of resources. So it is true that <clears throat> Renee gets to play, and that's awesome, Renee. I'm so glad. <laughs> uh, yes. But also what she's doing is helping people be successful and stay in that housing so that we don't have like a revolving door. Uh, we're in this business because we care, we house, we like to say we build housing, but we house people. We're here to house people. We're not just here to make deals work or build housing, even though Jillian and her team are amazing at that. We're also very dedicated to providing robust services. And I think that really does differentiate us <clears throat> a lot from some of the for-profit kinds of communities. We, when we get paid to do housing development, which maybe isn't a ton of money, we're going to reinvest that money back into the community that we serve. We want to make sure that our communities are successful for the long term. We're a nonprofit organization, and we're dedicated to our residents. And that is, I think, what makes us uh, different than other um, kinds of developers. Well, I want to go back to the, what you started with. I mean, what are the ways in which the kinds of services or activities or socializing that Renee and others have been talking about how do those actually help people stay in their homes? So um, it's really important that we know who our residents are and we develop relationships with them. But let me give you a super concrete answer to how things that we things we do that help people stay in their homes. Uh, so during the pandemic, um, we had a lot of residents who were struggling to pay their rent. And uh, there were rules uh, that the state uh, was really clear that if folks applied for rent assistance, um, we they were not going to get evicted. So um, we had staff who reached out to every resident who was having problems paying their rent. And we made sure that I think all but maybe five families had connected to rent assistance. Five out of hundreds of families. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and so I feel like uh, part of the reason that was successful is because people spent time building relationships. Bingo is actually important. It, is, it helps people stay connected to their neighbors, and people feeling connected to their neighbors is going to help people stay in housing. If you have a neighbor and, you, and, some, and they're usually there at Bingo and they're not well, then that, that neighbor is going to notice that person's not there, and they're going to either find the services coordinator or the property manager or someone and say, I'm worried about so-and-so. And so there's a lot of things beside that. But we also do things like uh, we, we have a grant right now from Care Oregon that helps us with housekeeping uh, that for, for Renee's population in particular because some folks have a hard time cleaning their apartments. And that can become a lease enforcement issue um, if, if, if it goes on for a while. Mm -hmm. And, and I just wouldn't want to interject because, I mean, the term that I learned not having been in housing prior to this job is eviction prevention. So there are all sorts of housing laws that I don't even know what they are, but if a, a resident has barriers and ends up being at risk of being evicted and having to go to court, I would join that person and go to court with them and work with the judge to develop a stipulated agreement so that person doesn't get evicted. And is it fair to say that maybe often when we're talking about eviction protection, we're also talking about homelessness prevention? Absolutely, yeah. You mentioned uh, Mary Barbie, resident uh, of the Knoll and Tigard, who is actually with us. Mary, hello. Hello. Um, and I'm, I understand you've been there for about a, a dozen years now. Uh, yeah. I, when I moved in, it was an infant. <laughs> uh, um, so we've did matured. it behave badly like a lot of infants do? <laughs> no, actually, it's pretty good. Um, we've well, matured your, together. <laughs> you've matured, what does that mean? It means that... Um, well, I've been through some pretty complex managers, and uh, but built a rapport um, with them and saw how they helped the community grow, hmm. um, assisting you know us as residents. I'm right now seventy years old. Amanda and Renee has made Amanda's the property manager. Yeah, property okay. manager there. Um, has actually made my uh, home there a little more secure. I feel safer. Um, if any issues arise, 
Um, Amanda's on it. Renee is really helpful with everything. I'm not able to drive, and I'm, I have quite a few health issues. Um, she will go get food baskets for me and bring them to me. And like she just did my uh, utility assistance for me just this morning. I understand that you also have a Section 8 voucher. I actually applied for the Section 8 in when I was in um, San Jose, California. So 10 years I waited for my voucher. 10 years. Mm-hmm. So I uh, actually came in, and when my son secured it, I'm on Social Security. So my income, uh, they did it, I think it was the 30%. Mm-hmm. So I was a, a, able to pay for my rent with that part until I got my voucher, and now it's... Uh, the voucher takes a big chunk of that out. So it kind of balanced things out and made it a little bit easier for me to uh, to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, being there has really uh, improved my life, I have to say. my I have a lot of health issues, like I said, but can't judge a book by its cover because I feel, you know, I feel helpful. They, they really, they look after us a mm-hmm. lot. I mean, it's provided me a secure place to live. Mary, thank you very much. That's Mary Barbie, who lives in another CPA apartment building, the Knoll, which is in Tigard. If you were just tuning in, we're talking right now about affordable housing in Oregon. Rachel Duke, I want to turn to some of the the bigger pictures here. Maybe this is an oversimplification, but but tell me if, if it is. It seems like there would be two big ways to make housing more affordable. You could increase the amount of money that people have, or you could decrease the total cost of housing. Vouchers, it seems that they largely do the former. They make it so people have to spend less money for housing. But we haven't talked that much yet about what it would take to to actually make housing truly less expensive to begin with. What would it take there's been a lot of analysis lately um, and on, on, you know, kind of what is the origin of this housing crisis that we have, not just in Oregon, but around the country. And it, uh, a, there's a lot of evidence that suggests it's a supply issue. And really what we need to be doing is building a lot more places for people to live. Um, and uh, we probably took a little bit of a break from doing some building here in Oregon, and we're behind on the amount of units we have. The number I've seen is that Oregon as a whole is short something like 140,000 housing units compared to, to what we need. Because of that, the governor has called for an increase of 80% in terms of the production of new housing over the next decade, meaning 36,000 new units of housing every year for 10 years a gigantic increase in the status quo. Do you think that's possible? It would be awesome to have that much housing built every year. And I think that we can definitely do better than we're, than we're doing now. So I think uh, it's really important to have aspirational goals. And I also think we can do a lot better than we're doing now in terms of uh, making funding available, making it easier to access resources so you don't have to layer 15 funding sources like we have in some of our buildings, Um, creating opportunities for private development to do middle-income housing um, so that there's folks who um, maybe don't need affordable housing. I mean, all housing is affordable to somebody, I guess, right? But not necessarily housing that's targeting folks who are lower income, but maybe people who are middle income. We definitely need more apartments and homes for those folks as well. And then there are there are strategies around land use that we can employ to, to get there. Uh, you know, Oregon passed a land use bill a couple years ago that uh, essentially outlawed that outlawed, but made I guess outlawed a, a single family um, dwelling as the base zone um, that you you can't limit it to single family homes in most zones. And what that does is gives us an opportunity over time to add more housing units to existing. Uh, parcels, which is also, you know, it's a, it's a smaller, slow strategy, but it's one that I think could have real impact over time as well. Have you seen an impact in this region from the, the metro regional government's uh, affordable housing 
measure that voters said yes to a couple years ago? Yeah, I mean, we have are so excited about the resources that passed uh, thanks to the voters and the bond. And I want to point out that uh, SEPA has uh, recently completed the Joyce in downtown Portland. We're working on a 116-unit apartment building in Tualatin, and we have three other communities in the pipeline, and those are all bond-funded communities, and those are hundreds of units, and is not the only organization, obviously, that's creating those apartment communities. And so without that kind of resource, we would not have been able to access, um, the access to create that housing. I mean, we still uh, are reliant on things like tax credits, the 4% uh, tax credits in particular, so we're grateful to the state for those, but uh, the bond created a really big opportunity for us to add units to fo- for folks who really need it. We have time for one more guest from our audience. Jeffrey Worthington has lived in SIPA's Spencer House Apartments in Beaverton for, am I right, the, the last seven years? Correct. Yeah, seven years. Um, I understand for the last two years, you've been um, a member of the, the board for SIPA. What does that entail? Well, for me, um, the reason why I like being part of the board is I have a say. I guess I, I like being, I'm one of those people who likes to uh, know what's going on as far as policy is concerned. And feeling a part of something bigger than myself really is uh, it, it, that's something I was seeking. And being a part of the board was a lot that allowed me to feel like that. And, I, and it's even more that I have a personal stake being a resident in affordable housing that I actually have a, a say in and how and my input into how things go. Uh, and you have, I guess you, you have a you're a, a voting member of the board. You're not just an yeah, observer. I'm a full member. I'm a full member. Yes, correct. That's that's real power. Yeah, it is. And I and I'm one boss. of those people. Yeah, I'm one of those people who, um, because of my history of uh, disability, I guess I like to be an advocate for people who have disabilities wherever I go. And if I can be you know, an advocate on the board, and I guess that's my perspective, given having somebody who's had a disability in the past and having being somebody who's lived in affordable housing for much of my existence, <laughs> um, having that that way to you know to present myself and present where I've been and my perspective is really important to me. I I've always felt like I wanted to be something, do something meaningful, and be a part of something meaningful, and I feel like. Being on the board is one of the things that helps me feel like I'm connected to something bigger and something part of the community. And that, to me, is very important. What do you think Oregonians maybe don't know enough about when it comes to affordable housing? I think that they don't know the scale of of the problem. I think that a lot of people don't realize just how, you know, and they don't know who is in affordable housing. You know, I mean, they don't realize that it's not just people like me who, you know, I'm on disability, I'm on low income, but there's people paying 75% of their rent. And I have a friend who's paying 75% of her rent, barely making it month to month. And I can't imagine what it'd be like to be in her position. I feel really badly for her. And knowing that, People are actually having to pay, you know, having to scrunch by just to pay rent and living that way and living with the insecurity of not knowing if my rent's going to go up and not knowing whether or not they're going to be able to afford housing in a month or two. Um, to me, that, I mean, I guess because I'm one of those people who has always felt kind of, <laughs> I guess, like, like an activist, I, I really feel like that, that, to me, is just appalling. Uh, I guess also I want to add, though, that um, I, you, I, I, this is a side, but it's really because the place I lived before in, in Wilsonville was not connected to a larger community. It was kind of in its own, it was kind of off to the side, so to speak. It was kind of in a rural, more rural area. And we didn't have a lot of access to grocery stores and places like that, and we didn't have access to public transportation. So I feel like it's really important to build affordable housing in places where people have access to the transportation and other services that make life possible for people like me who don't drive. Jeffrey Worthington, thank you very much. Jeffrey Worthington uh, has lived in SIPA's Spencer House Apartments in Beaverton for the last seven years, and he's a member of 
the CPA board. Rachel Duke, before we go, I'm curious, you've been working in this field in affordable housing for decades now, but it's only the last couple years that every elected official I can think of has truly started to talk about affordable housing, about what you've devoted your life to. Um, uh, well, your professional life, I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah thank you. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm curious what, what that's been like to have everybody um, realize the, about the scale of a problem that you've actually been aware of for a long time. Um, I am, I am uh, excited that uh, very, that there are more, there's more engagement in the larger community right now on this issue. Ultimately, um, I know, and I think my, my staff knows that um, housing is one of the most important issues in the universe. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's good to have the support and we hope increased funding will continue uh, so that we can do the work that we really wanna do. Rachel Duke and Renee Sheets Johnson, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Rachel Duke is the Executive Director of Community Partners for Affordable Housing. Renee Sheets-Johnson is the Resident Services Coordinator for the nonprofit. Thanks very much to everybody in our audience here and to the Oregon Community Foundation for helping make this show and our whole solutions-oriented series possible. The series producer is Allison Frost. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR One app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. Have a great day. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva. The Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern. Mm-hmm.